much, Sarah. I, I, I think I basically ag agree with what Michael said. Um, I hope we can have a debate as well, not just agree with each other. But I'd like to address the issue in a slightly different way. Um, there is a lot of EU labour law, but there's no comprehensive EU-level labour code. Um, and it's important to, to realise why that's the case. Um, as long ago as the 1910s even, the, the webs um, in industrial democracy argued for just such a thing, um, because there was a realisation um, in the early 20th century that unless there were international labour standards, it would be difficult for any one nation state in a competitive market setting to, to legislate. Um, there may well be an economic argument for, for labour legislation, I've made that case myself, but it's tempting for states to, to engage in a race to the bottom, if only for short-term gain, in a situation of a globalised or integrated regional economy. A, a hundred years ago, there was a kind of globalisation, the first globalisation which, which was ended by World War I, and the response to that period of globalisation, or imperialism really, but globalisation of a sort, the response in Western Europe was the creation of the very first international labour conventions. These were bilateral treaties initially between industrial nations and the first labour conventions were in areas of health and safety law. Then the ILO, the International Labour Organization, is established in 1919 by the Treaty of Versailles. And the ILO's mission is to create international labour standards with a view to maintaining peace, very much as Michael said in the case of the EU as well. But also the ILO consciously sets out to legitimise free trade. So the idea behind the ILO was and is that global trade, free trade, with all the ad advantages trade brings in terms of specialisation, and a division of labour and economic wealth and hopefully sustainable growth. These are all only really possible if trade is legitimate. And for that legitimacy, labour standards are really essential, not just at national level, but also at transnational level. Now, ILO treaties to this day are not directly effective in UK law. We have a, a, a theory of the, of the relationship between national law and international law, which basically says that because of parliamentary sovereignty, until something is put into legislation in this country, it doesn't really have much legal effect. So although the UK is a signatory to vast numbers of ILO conventions, these don't take immediate direct effect in UK law. They have to be implemented through statute. And actually, nearly all of them haven't been. Now, um, the EU, of course, is different, but the EU, in a sense, comes out of the same inspiration as the ILO. Um, the, the EU also is a peace-building um, exercise. Um, it's also about creating um, a transnational market, the, what we now call the single market or the internal market, originally the common market. But of course, there's also a role for social policy and much more besides uh, environmental standards and many, many other things are part of EU law. But no Labour code. Now, when the EU was being set up, the EEC, uh, as Michael was explaining in the 1950s, there was a, a debate about whether... Uh, an entity like the EEC, which was initially a, a customs union and uh, a free, an internal free trade area, a common external tariff, internal free trade, does that also necessitate standardising labour laws? The answer then was no, and it's interesting to reflect on why that was, um, partly because the six original member states were all signatories to many ILO conventions, but also in the case of the original six, these international labour standards took effect to a large extent in domestic law, partly because of the different 
relationship between international law and domestic law. For, so, for example, in France, as recently as the 2000s, a rather neoliberal law passed by Nicolas Sarkozy, a contrat de premier embauche, was struck down by, by French courts because of its incompatibility with an ILO convention. Right? That, that, that would never happen in this country. Partly that, but also the original six all had constitutions, codified constitutions. I know our constitution has evolved in the last week or so in a very interesting way, but it's still not codified and doesn't contain any social rights, really, uh, whereas those um, constitutions, in particular the French one, the French 1946 post-war constitution adopted under the influence of uh, actually a, a, a leftist movement in which the Communist Party was very prominent because of the immediate... Uh, post-war atmosphere in France and the role the Communist Party had played in the resistance. The 1946 constitution is still part of the French constitution, it's very radical. Those social rights are embedded in a way that's not the case in this country. Now, what's also happening in the 50s is auto-liberalism um, heavily influenced, I think, the legal structure of the EEC. And auto-liberalism was not so much the French, but the German idea that a strong state was needed to create a market economy. This is not the same as American or British libertarianism or neoliberalism that Michael also mentioned, but the idea that the state should actively intervene to create the market. It's not enough for the market to just emerge spontaneously, which is often the way libertarians uh, think about it in the Anglo-Saxon tradition of Anglo-American thought. The German tradition was we need a strong state to control monopolies, strong antitrust law, and later on it became a strong state was needed at federal or okay, European level to create the internal market. Now, within that framework, the founders of the EEC said, we don't really need a European labor code because with six nation states all strongly committed to social rights, we expect that uh, a common market, free flow of trade and goods and persons, would actually create pressures for leveling up, not leveling down. A bit optimistic, you may think, but actually, not an unreasonable position, given the difficulty of legislating for a European Labour Code at that point. It's a really big endeavour, um, and maybe that was the right decision to, to stress instead common market rules. Michael's already mentioned rules about social security. Um, we don't either have a social security code in Europe, but we do have rules requiring member states to coordinate their social security systems. So only those who move between member states are really affected by this, not everybody else. Now, why did that change? Um, three waves of social reform at EU level have been really pivotally important. As Michael says, the EU has this strong auto-liberal market element, but it's never been to the exclusion of social democratic elements. First big wave in the 70s when the EEC is enlarged to nine member states, Denmark, the UK and Ireland joining, and at, a, at the same time, the oil, oil crisis and recession. So the response of the EEC was a larger market creates more pressures for uh, enterprise restructuring, and that's going to lead to job loss if, if we don't deal with this. Um, the oil crisis, of course, again, is leading to pressure on, on, on member states, maybe to engage in a race to the bottom. So what happened was the EEC pressed for directives which dealt specifically with the issue of enterprise restructuring, transfers undertakings, and redundancy consultation. Now, redundancy consultation, uh, it's an interesting case, just to, to take one particular example, we haven't got all day to talk about particular laws, but redundancy consultation is interesting, because the UK already had laws on redundancy compensation from the 60s, but those laws actually encouraged downsizing, because their, their aim was to subsidise 
redundancy, to encourage workers to give up jobs in return for getting compensation and to move on to other industries. But the redundancy consultation directive doesn't do that at all. It says if there are collective redundancies, there must be consultation with a view to mitigating, maybe even preventing those redundancies, the opposite approach. Much more mainland European attitude to this. And giving rights to workers inside the enterprise. The UK had never done that in law. Okay, there was collective bargaining, but didn't, that didn't depend upon legislation in the same sense. It depended upon the immunities, of course, keeping the common law out. What did the UK do? The European model is very much along the lines of give rights to works councils or enterprise committees in the workplace. This is a French or German model. Um, works councils in Germany, committees of enterprise, enterprise committees in France. The UK said those rights, because we don't have such entities, belong to recognised trade unions at plant level. And that actually, at company level, that also makes sense. Why create a new institution? EU law is flexible enough to say, yes, the UK equivalent is a recognised trade union. And at that point, in the 1970s, probably the vast majority of workplaces above a certain size, more than 20 employees, would have had a recognised trade union. So this made sense. The other great wave of reform comes in the early 90s, uh, and this is the responsibility really of, of Jacques Delors, who was a visionary, I think, in seeing how economic and social rights might be combined. When Delors was commissioned president, he pushed strongly for the single currency and the establishment of the European Central Bank and the completion of the internal market, which along order liberal lines required creating lots of new laws to standardise the rules about products. So create a market, you need laws, you need rules. You're not just taking it away. But Delors said you also need a single currency to stop competitive devaluations. But he said, again, typical ILO thinking, early 20th century, to make this legitimate, you need very strong social rights. So he argued for what would have become a European Labour Code in effect. As Michael explained, around this time, the powers of the EU were strengthened to adopt social laws, qualified majority voting. And Delors produced a package, the Social Action Programme, in the late 80s that would have matured into a genuine comprehensive floor of rights. It would have covered almost everything. Uh, now, at the Maastricht Treaty, uh, uh, well, Maastricht Summit in 1991, um, the UK government, then led by John Major, of course, had first of all managed to get a lot of this watered down so that the powers were more limited than they would have been to enact social laws. And then, of course, the UK opted out altogether through the so-called social protocol. This was a typical UK response. Bargain these rights down and then try to opt out of them anyway. And Delors' programme was frustrated very much by the UK in the following years. And the reason we don't have a European Labour Code is very much down, first of all, to UK opposition at a critical point. Delors understood that this was the moment to get all this in. It, it wouldn't happen later. And Labour laws work like that. Labour laws are often counter-cyclical and are hard to get rid of once you've got them. Right, so you pass a Labour law in a period like the early 90s, which could have been propitious for Labour law, they tend to stick. Right? even in a period now when maybe it would seem that governments don't need labour laws so much. We tend to get very progressive pro-worker labour laws when unions are strong and when there is pressure on governments to enact labour legislation to avoid what they would see as industrial conflict or unrest and also to deal with things like high inflation. The 70s are a period of progressive labour reform in the UK because of economic circumstances which favoured this. And Delors understood that in the 90s he could push this agenda forward because he would link social policy to the creation of the single currency. 
The UK stopped that, and that's partly why we don't have such strong labour laws in the UK today. UK opposition was responsible, I think, for this. But after the early 2000s as well, enlargement of the EU to the east, the new member states were mostly run by conservative or right-wing or pro-market pro governments because of the reaction to what was perceived to be labour law. Of course, the so-called real socialist or real communist states hadn't had labor law in any sense that we would recognize it had planned economies without a market labor system nevertheless there was a sentiment that social democracy was somewhat in eclipse as the eu was enlarged so Delors vision and it, it was a, a really exciting and, and compelling vision wasn't fully realized but many of the laws that we now benefit from came in during that period laws today in health and safety especially even UK law, which had health and safety law already, was greatly strengthened by the Framework Directive on Health and Safety. Such laws on working time as we have uh, are thanks to the EU, the working time um, regulations. Laws protecting, they could be better, but they do still protect part-time workers, fixed-term employees and agency workers were part of this law agenda. We have those laws thanks to him. The court is also in expansive mode in this period, strengthening remedies. So again, take one practical example, equal pay claims. In the early 2000s, thanks partly to changes in, in the rules on contingent fees and conditional fees, uh, no win, no fee law firms like Stephen Cross's firm began to bring mass claims against employers in respect of equal pay, often for arrears. That's only possible thanks to EU law. Yes, we already, of course, had an Equal Pay Act, but getting arrears of equal pay up to six years and often giving people thousands of pounds of compensation for unequal pay was only made possible by EU law. So a combination in that period of a progressive change to civil litigation rules and the court saying there must be effective remedies for a breach of equal pay led to this um, very, very interesting development. And later, or I hope, well, it, it depends on your point of view. Maybe the unions did it after Stefan Cross did, or maybe they were doing it anyway. Okay, but nevertheless, this is a huge uh, change, I think, for UK law and for practice on equal pay. That couldn't have happened without EU law, even though we already had some equal pay law. Now, the third big infusion of social democratic um, influence, I think, is happening right now. Um, the European Pillar of Social Rights, much derided when it was um, put forward. It's not hard law. Um, it's a very odd-looking initiative. Um, and it, it comes out of, really, um, again, um, the Commission's agenda. When Jean-Claude Juncker became Commission President, he was opposed by David Cameron um, for, for the very good reason that Cameron thought that somebody coming from a Christian Democrat background in Luxembourg was likely to be at least more sympathetic to the cause of social policy than his predecessor had been. Barroso, who was very much a libertarian, neoliberal and Atlanticist, who Tony Blair pushed into that office. Um, and Juncker turned out to be like that. As a Christian Democrat, he's not really a socialist, but he did push forward the agenda of labor law reform again at EU level. And the pillar is not exactly like the Delors social program, but let's just think about the very difficult circumstances in which the commission was, was operating. The EU has been enlarged. There isn't a natural majority for stronger labor law protection. One has to continually make the case for this. While this is all going on, of course, inside the Eurozone, which the UK is not part of, but is affected a little bit by, I guess, institutionally and politically, the EU is pushing a structural adjustment programme on Greece, Portugal 
uh, and to some degree um, Italy, Spain and Ireland, which actually led to some deregulation of labour law, although I think we need to be careful here. The extent to which it really had that effect for labour law as opposed to social security law was limited. But Juncker at any rate pushed this idea forward. Everybody was very sceptical. What's come out of it, two interesting initiatives, uh, a strengthening of the posting directive, which deals partly with the issue of social dumping that comes out of the Laval judgment, and secondly, the, the very recent directive on transparent employment terms, which begins to address many of the concerns over the gig economy, and, and really would be a radical change for the UK if it were ever to be enacted. So I, I, I think that the, the way to think about EU social law is, it's never really going to be a European labour code. It won't deliver for British unions or workers everything that they might want. There are huge areas of British labour law that are right outside EU law. There's no EU law underpinning the minimum wage. There's no EU law underpinning freedom of association. These are outside the competences of the EU to act. Um, there is a lot of EU law that doesn't look terribly sympathetic either to labour regulation. Uh, internal market law has been interpreted in the Laval and Viking cases in a way that actually did begin to undercut certain collective rights and even limited the right to strike. Even though there's no competence to adopt a directive on the right to strike, there is, it seems, capability to use internal market law to undermine strike action to some degree. That's a Viking case, of course. Although there, again, one has to be careful, and um, the UK Court of Appeal in the Govia case um, actually blocked much of the significance of the Viking case for the UK, which is very interesting, isn't it? So Patrick Elias did that. Um, so EU law is not exactly um, a kind of substitute for the ILO. Okay. It, it never will be. It's always going to be a compromise between a kind of order-liberal, pro-market, pro-economic pro integration position and maybe a rather qualified acceptance of social rights. But of course, compare that to UK politics. We have on the one hand uh, what's becoming very quickly uh, a libertarian right-wing party, and what is now a left-wing party that's, that's, to say the least, taking a sceptical position on the EU and hasn't ever, I think, under Corbyn, said that its role should be to defend uh, EU labour rights. Um, I don't see how it can take that position if it's um, sitting on the fence on Brexit. Now, of course, what Labour did do was stop the withdrawal agreement being adopted. Of course, trying to figure out Labour's position on Brexit is, is something beyond my capability. You'd have to be a political scientist to really get this. Um, and, and somebody very close to Westminster. Uh, I take it that Labour doesn't want to be blamed for Brexit, doesn't want to support the withdrawal agreement, um, and quite right too. And also, in the end, didn't agree with the May government a deal on the withdrawal agreement that would have entrenched stronger worker rights. Okay. Uh, May's withdrawal agreement, or really it's the European Commission's agreement, they drafted it. That is very interesting and may yet prove significant in our own domestic debate uh, because what it does, well, what it would do would be to create uh, a so-called customs territory between the UK and the EU. The UK would not be part of the European Customs Union, but it would be part of something called a customs territory. And the condition of being in that is that, okay, on the one hand, the UK gets free trade, so there are no tariffs on, on goods moving between the UK and the mainland. That, 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 that's critically important. But also the UK is signing up to the embedding going forward of all the EU social laws in place <clears throat> at the end of the um, transition period. Right. So the plan was, we go through a transition period after Brexit, this is the withdrawal agreement, you get to the end of 2020, in this period, if the withdrawal agreement ever comes in, nothing changes, really, legally. 
the UK is bound under the Withdrawal Agreement Treaty to follow EU law in the, in, in the transition period as if nothing at all had changed. It all just sticks. After the transition period, the EU and the UK were committed under the Withdrawal Agreement to a free trade agreement that would embed many of these social laws. That's the Withdrawal Agreement. It would have entrenched not quite as they are now, but it would have, would have entrenched going forward EU social rights, at least as they were in place at the end of the transition period. Okay, Any new laws adopted after 2020 wouldn't be binding on the UK, but of course there'd be tremendous pressure to adopt them. And I think, in a sense, a big institutional pull from the EU, saying, why don't you want to adopt them? You've got to, you've, you've got to abide by all the rest. And that's a quid pro quo, by the way, for having free trade. If you want free trade and no tariffs on goods at Dover, and everything else, free movement and participation in things like the European Research Council for university academics and people like us uh, who might, might miss our research funding. If you want all that, you've got to agree to these social standards, the normal EU offer, the single market and social, social policy go together. Now, uh, of course, when Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, he quickly began to row back on that. And um, briefings we see in the press appear to be saying that they'd be keen to dilute um, this commitment to social rights going forward, and they're no longer committed to seamless free trade, they said, as, as free as it can be. So the Johnson government isn't at all taking the same line as the May government did. They really do seem to want to push for a libertarian solution that would detach the EU at, at a regulatory level and, and the UK from each other and align the UK much more with, well, who knows? They envisage aligning it with US standards, but that's a whole other story. Right, okay. What sort of trade agreement would the U US agree with the UK? Well, that, that we'll, we'll see. But it wouldn't necessarily be one with no labour clauses in it. Okay. But we do know it wouldn't be one embedding social rights along European lines. So going forward, um, the implication of departure from the EU is that the mechanism which embeds these social rights falls away. Because there's no codified constitution, because international labour law is not part of UK law, there's no way even a left-wing government um, could embed these social rights in the way they're currently embedded. They'll always be subject to repeal by a parliament. So a left-wing Labour government might enact all sorts of social laws only for a libertarian conservative government to repeal them when the electoral cycle returns. Everybody understands that, I think. That's why many of the strongest supporters of Brexit on the right are libertarians who've absolutely clearly said right from the start, read what Daniel Hannan wrote, read what Douglas Carswell wrote. They had a long list of laws they wanted to get rid of, um, in a book they published um, shortly before the Brexit referendum. Laws on things like gun controls, cladding on blocks of flats. They didn't repeat this after Grenfell, but they, they said this. They wanted to get rid of all those fire regulations. Long, long list of laws they wanted to get rid of. At the bottom, let's also get rid of all these European Union commitments. We won't achieve our libertarian agenda if we stay inside the EU. They understood this. And that's pretty much the position of the current government, I think. Um, it must be because the shift from May to Johnson is a shift from a kind of um, Christian democratic ap approach to conservative politics, I think under May and, and Nick Timothy, to something much more libertarian and North American. So even a left-wing Labour government won't be able, I think, to embed social rights. And I don't really think that the left can gain in any way from EU departure. 
I know there's a Lexit position, and many people, including some very eminent people in our legal profession, and indeed on the academic side, think we have to get out of the EU in order to have a much more uh, progressive social policy. That doesn't seem right to me. EU law basically sets minimum standards and member states can improve on them. So the idea that we need to liberate ourselves from the EU in order to pass progressive laws on collective bargaining or the right to strike makes no sense. Um, maybe there's an element of a kind of internal market logic, but as I say, our own courts have already dealt with that to a large extent in the Govia case. The Laval case on posting has been dealt with by the uh, amendments to the posting directive, another major initiative coming out of the um, social pillar, and for that we have to thank another French person, Emmanuel Macron. Whatever we think of Emmanuel Macron, on the left, and if you speak to French colleagues uh, in labour law departments, they'll say Macron is a man of the right. Well, to us he doesn't always look that way. He was behind the insistence on reforming the posting directive. That may well get challenged in court eventually. But those measures would never have been adopted by the EU had the UK still been an active player. Had the UK, of course we haven't left yet, but had the UK decided to put its foot down and say we don't want the Transparency Directive and we don't want the amendments to the Posting Directive, they wouldn't have happened. Because the UK wasn't taking any active part in this, and I'm not quite sure why, they either just didn't want to, or May may have decided to let it all go through because she wasn't against these laws, not quite clear to me. The opponents of these laws in Poland and Hungary would have blocked them, but without UK participation they couldn't do. So I think that for the EU, at, at present, the UK's departure, on, as far as social policy is concerned, is, of course, an unalloyed blessing. It, it just is. Um, the EU can only benefit from the UK withdrawing from the, the field on social policy. Uh, but for the UK itself, it's, it's potentially catastrophic. And I think that's probably where I should end. Sorry to have gone a bit too long. Not at all. Not at all. Mm. Thank well, you very that's much indeed, Simon. That's